Well, thanks, and uh, good to be back with you. Thanks for inviting me. You probably didn't get the choice, but anyway, here I am. Shall we just pray before we open this, uh, this psalm together? Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it's not just writing on paper, it's a living word, the word of God himself. So we come to it humbly, Lord, we come to it reverently, expecting to hear from you. And we pray that you will tune our hearts, Lord, and help us to listen and to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as Ian said, um, the series that you're looking at uh, is about God as King. I was given the title, The People of the King. Um, This psalm doesn't actually mention people of the King. It mentions the King, and it mentions the people of his pasture in verse uh, 7. And I think that's quite relevant, really. It's the key that opens up this psalm, I think, um, because it is the, the, um, the, the king that we come to worship But he's not a king who is uh, far away. He's not a king who is unapproachable. He's a king who is the shepherd of his people. And if we are his people, then it means we can come to him um, in trust and in faith, knowing that he will be with us in all circumstances of our lives. Um, But in thinking about uh, people, the people of the king, um, we need to think about what a people is. Because if we use that term people it means that there's something that unites us, something that binds us together. Um, If you call um, a group of people a people, you know that there is something about them. You might say that Australians are a people, and what unites them, well, at the moment, it's tears of uh, sorrow, I think, over the the cricket. Um, They're certainly united in that. Um, I heard somebody say that they were expecting the Australian Prime Minister to come out with a paper bag over his head during the weekend. (laughs) didn't want to show his face. But people had characteristics which unite them. And if we are the people of the king, what is it that unites us? What joins us together? What is the thing that we share? And uh, I think this psalm brings out some of the things which unite us as God's people. But they're not just things which uh, which unite us or, or things that are in our hearts. They're things which God has put in all human beings' hearts, I believe, anyway, But sadly, the people who who are not the people of the king, the people of the world, tend to misuse or abuse these characteristics which God has given us. And I think there are three things in this psalm which which come out, which unite us as the people of God. And the first thing is that they are praising people. We, if we're God's people, are praising people. Uh, That comes out in in the first uh, few verses. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. It's a note of praise. Uh, but it's a note, uh, a praise is something which, which, which is in, in all people's hearts. Uh, we rightly praise people when they do well. We praise them uh, when we appreciate what they've done. And everybody does that. Uh, we praise people. But sadly, often, um, humanity tends to be a, a complaining people rather than a praising people. We went to see the play The Mousetrap at uh, the Lyceum in Sheffield uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm not allowed to tell you what the end of it is because you might want to go and see it sometime and it's part of the the thing that you're not allowed to say how it ends. But I can tell you that one of the characters in in that play is somebody that is always complaining at everything. She comes on stage and she just moans the whole time. She complains about this, she complains about that. And don't we all know people like that? Um, Sadly... Um, 
people tend, or sometimes tend, to complain more than they praise. We often complain, don't we, about the weather, whatever it's doing. If it's raining, we complain, and if it's sunny, it's too hot, and so we go on. But as Christians, as people of the King, we are called to be praising people. And we are praising people because we have someone who is worth praising. Worth praising. And our demeanour as Christian people ought, I believe, to be one of positiveness and of joy. And this note of praise in this psalm is very specific in its character. It's noisy, it's exuberant, and it's joyful. If you think the Old Testament was dull and boring, certainly here it isn't. The people of God are called to praise God joyfully. And it specifically involves singing. Come, let us sing for joy. Now, I've been to church services, in fact, I've preached in church services which are spoken only, where there's no singing. And to my mind, there's something missing in that. I'm sure there are times when we have quiet, reflective times, but I believe that the normal gathering of God's people should include singing, the singing of God's praise. And it's a command here, come, let us sing, let us sing to God. And it's a theme that's threaded right throughout the Bible, right from the beginning when the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea and Moses and Miriam sang a song to God, a song of praise to the Lord. And it comes right the way through the Psalms, obviously, which are songs of praise to God, through into the New Testament, just before Jesus went out um, to the cross at the Last Supper, we read they sang a hymn together. And the early church sang, and then right the way through into Revelation, where we get those great peons of praise to God. The church uh, glorified, singing praise to God. And I think it's something that's, that's uh, very important, because singing combines two parts of our humanity. It combines what we do with our brains, because we're singing words which hopefully we can understand and relate to, and it combines that with our sort of inner spirits which rise up within us. So it, it enables us to praise God in a way that we understand. It gives us words that we can use, but it uses them in a way which our spirits are stirred. In fact, we unite with the Spirit of God as we praise God. We've just come back last week from the Keswick Convention, as I understand one or two others here have as well. Um, and the experience there and other similar um, conventions or, or meetings, um, particularly though at Keswick, where um, in one place, in that big tent, there are 3,000 people singing praise to God. And it's something that, you know, you can't escape. It's just a tremendous uh, sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, joining with all those people praising God from their hearts. And it truly lifts the spirit. And this psalm tells us that this singing should be joyful. It should be joyful. That word joy actually comes twice. Obviously in verse 1 where it says, let us sing for joy. Um, but uh, in verse 2 when it says, let us extol him, that word extol also incorporates the idea of joy. Joyfully tell out the praise of God. Now, for some of us who have a more sombre disposition, perhaps you might say, exuberant joy doesn't come that easily very often. But this psalm tells us that we have someone, we have a God, a great God, a king above all gods, who is worth praising. 
and we ought to let ourselves go, really, even some of, our, some of us who are more reserved, and allow ourselves to praise God enthusiastically. And the psalm then goes on to give us reasons why we should praise God. Verse 3 says, for, that word for, because, that's the reason we should praise God. But he, the psalmist uh, leads us into that um, by giving, giving us a reason to praise God before he even gets to the, the because, if you like. And it comes right in the first line, or the second line. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And we praise God primarily, first and foremost, because he has saved us. He is the rock of our salvation. If he hadn't saved us, then we couldn't praise him. We would have nothing to praise him for. And it's vital for us to remember this. Our salvation is the only thing that makes God our friend. If it wasn't for our salvation, God would be our enemy, our judge, who would rightly condemn us for our rebellion against him. Paul wrote famously in that uh, famous uh, verse in the beginning of Romans chapter 8, which I think we're going to refer to later on in one of the hymns we're going to sing, if I heard Joan practicing correctly earlier on. Paul wrote, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that verse, that sentence, implies that if you're not in Christ Jesus, if we're not united to Christ, then there is condemnation. God rightly condemns us because we have rebelled against him if we're not in Christ Jesus. But thank God for his mercy and his grace. If we are saved, then there is no condemnation. And that is a huge reason for us to praise God because he's our saviour. We praise him because of his kindness and his grace to us. He saved us when we couldn't save ourselves. He is the rock, it says here. He is the rock. We are those who are drifting around unless we are anchored to the rock. We require, we need, we are desperate for his security, his salvation. We are the boat anchored to that rock. And so we praise him because salvation comes from him. But then we praise him for who he is. Verse 3 says, He is the great God, the Lord, the great God, the King above all gods. He is the only one worthy of our praise. Now we, want to, we may want to praise many other things, and we do praise other things and other people. But God is the only one who really deserves our praise and our adoration. The Israelites were constantly tempted to incorporate the praise of other gods into their praise of Yahweh. They didn't give up the praise of, of the one true God, but they incorporated praise of other gods into their worship, which of course made them rebellious against God. Now most of us don't suffer from that temptation. We don't suffer from the temptation to bring other gods into our worship. But we can let other things get in the way of our worship of God. We can give them glory when we should be giving God glory. How many times have you heard a great sermon and thanked the preacher afterwards? Now, there's nothing wrong with that, I hasten to add. But have you thanked God? Have you given God the glory for what you've learned, for how he's touched you in some way? And if something good happens in your life, and other people are involved, you probably thank them, family or friends or whatever, but have you given praise to God for the way in which he's directed you 
blessed you in your life. And the psalmist reminds us that the ultimate object of our praise ought to be God always because all good gifts come from God. In fact, it says he made everything. Everything is made by God. Whatever you see, whatever you experience, whatever you know comes from God ultimately. And he lists in verses 4 and 5 the things God has made. And it's a very interesting list. He says the depths of the earth, the mountain peaks, the sea and the dry land. And those things are, are highly significant. All those things are highly significant things to the Israelites. And all of them, except the last one, which we'll come to in a moment, are places, areas, which the people of Israel considered to be dangerous or even evil places. Places that they placed outside of the control of God. The depths of the earth, the caves and the caverns were seen as places where the evil spirits lived. Places where it was unsafe to go. Places you didn't want to be found in. And the mountain heights were the complete opposite. The mountain heights were seen as the places where the gods dwelt. You remember in the Old Testament when the people did turn away from God and they built altars to, to Baal and other gods, they built them on the high places, on the mountain tops, because they thought they'd be nearer the gods. So the mountain tops were seen as the places where gods lived. And you didn't go to the mountain tops unless you were in a good relationship with the god that you considered to live there. That's why um, God called Moses up onto the top of Mount Sinai. Hello, welcome, come in, sit down. So when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai, he was going to meet God in the high place, in the mountain top. And Jesus used that also, um, that experience, to teach the disciples that when he went up onto a mountain, they were expecting to meet or have an experience of God, which they did. And then there's the sea. Now the sea is interesting in scripture. The sea was seen as a place of chaos, of evil, of, of the, an area which was not under control. So in the Old Testament, Jonah was cast into the sea when he disobeyed God and it was expected that he would die there. When Jesus uh, healed the man who was uh, possessed by a, a legion of, of uh, demons, what did he do? He allowed them to go into a herd of pigs and the pigs went into the sea. And that was a practical demonstration by Jesus, showing that these evil spirits had gone to the place where they belonged, into the sea, out of the way, out of the, the realm of human beings. And right at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, in the new creation, we read that there is no sea, there is no sea, because this chaos, this evil, has been done away with, and everything is under the rule and the reign of God. So all these three places, the depths of the earth, the mountain tops and the seas were places which were seen to be out of reach, away, you know, places where human beings shouldn't go to. But what does the psalmist say about them? He says, well, God made them. The Lord made them. In fact, he says more than that. He says, they're in his hands. They're completely under his control. They're places where we don't have to fear, we don't have to worry, because God's made them. 
just as we might hold an apple in our hand and feel you know, no, nothing more about it than it's just an apple in our hands. So God holds these places, holds his whole creation in his hands. And we need not fear any evil, even from unknown places. But that's not all, of course. He goes on in verse 5 to tell us that he made the dry land as well. Now, the dry land is the place where we live. It's the place where human beings lived. The dry land, if you like, is the safe place, the safe areas. It's the everyday, the normal, the places that we are familiar with. And God made them too. As Psalm 139 puts it, you discern, God discerns my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. God is there even in the, the mundane, the humdrum, the everyday life. So God holds what we might see as remote and frightening to us, situations and circumstances that seem out of our control. He's got them in his hand. But he's also got our day-to-day -day lives, our everyday humdrum lives in his hands. He literally made the ground that we walk on. So perhaps we need to ask ourselves, what are we facing in the coming week? What's just over the horizon that we don't know about? Maybe it's a situation we're not looking forward to. Perhaps a difficult colleague, a tri tricky relationship, an uncertain future. Perhaps there are financial difficulties, I don't know. And there are always unknown things around the corner. We don't know the future. Perhaps we're just expecting the humdrum and the normal. We think life's okay, we're quite happy to go along as it is at the moment. But whatever it is, and whatever the future holds for us, we can be sure that God has it under his control. He holds us and he holds his creation in his hands and it's safe there. We need not fear, we just trust God and praise him for his care and his protection. So praise then for the God who saved us and who made the earth and everything in it is the first mark of the people of the king. The second then is worship. Verses 6 and 7 speak of worship. Come let us bow down in worship. Now worship isn't the same as praise. Praise certainly involves our inmost beings but in essence it's an external activity. We open our mouths and we praise God. Worship on the other hand is a total abandonment, our total abandonment to the object of our worship. And sadly we see that in the world around us, but not to the worship of God. We see it on the football terraces, we see it at pop concerts, we see it at political rallies where people abandon themselves to the thing that they've come to watch or to see or to give their, their allegiance to. And we see it to such a degree that people get carried away uh, and behave in uncharacteristic ways and this is what worship does because we abandon ourselves to the object of our worship so in those circumstances um, you know people get carried away in singing and chanting on the terraces but it can turn to be, to be more sinister than that it can turn to hatred and violence because the thing that we worship begins to take over our, our whole beings that's what worship's about it's about letting ourselves go to the thing that we worship. And because of that, it means that it, it, it's demonstrated in our body posture, in the way in which we carry ourselves 
Now, uh, we, we can see that again, can't we, on the football terraces, you know, the whatever it might be, you know. People just get carried away and they let themselves go. But what does the psalmist say here? Well, he gives us things, that, uh, ways in which we can use our bodies. He says, bow down and worship, kneel before the Lord our Maker. And I think that's significant, those, those postures that he says. Actually, the normal position for, for the, Is, the Israelites to worship was to lie face down on the ground. They used to prostrate themselves before God. They used to stand with their arms raised to pray and lie down before God to worship. And that's an attitude which demonstrates the created thing, the, the human being, prostrating themselves, being utterly at the command of the Creator, showing that the Creator is in control of us. It's difficult to find an adequate illustration for this because we, don't, we can't create anything that is capable of, of a response of worship. But if you could imagine a beautiful work of art, say the, a beautiful statue of Venus de Milo or something, or, or a painting, the, the Mona Lisa or whatever it might be, if they were able to respond, I'm sure that they would worship their creators, Michelangelo or Leonardo, whoever it was, because they would know that without the skill and the creative power of their, their makers, the artists, they would be nothing. They would be just so much clay or daubs of paint, pots of paint or whatever it might be. And we need to be reminded that we are nothing without God our maker, our creator and our saviour. In fact, we're doubly nothing because he's made us and he's saved us. And one of the things about human beings, the key to our rebellion against God, is that we think we can do without our Creator. We think we're bigger than him. We think we can push him to one side and neglect him. Whereas if we were a work of art, we would know that we couldn't, because we'd be nothing without him. He's made us and he's saved us. And from that, can you see how awful sin is? Sin is the created thing saying to the Creator, well, stuff you, I can do without you. I can, I'm alright on my own, thank you very much. It's Frankenstein's monster, out of control, the created object, attacking the creator. And because of that, can you see how amazingly wonderful the grace of God is? Because he not only redeems his rebellious creatures, but he does it by sacrificing himself at the hands of those creatures. He lets himself be killed, be crucified, by the very beings, the very ones who are rebelling against him. So the psalmist calls the people to worship their creator, not for anything he's done, but simply because he is the creator, he is their God, our God, and we are his creatures, the sheep of his pasture. We are the ones that he cares for. And if we follow this thought through, we can see why worship contains aspects of awe or even fear. Because the creator has the right and the power to do anything with his creation. The potter can squash the vase that he's just made back into a lump of clay if he wants to. If he thinks it's got a flaw in it or it's not what he wants, he can just pick it up off the wheel and squash it back into a, a lump of clay. The painter can scrape all the paint off the picture if he thinks it's not good enough and can start again. And God can and by what is right and just, should destroy us, his rebellious creatures, because we've rebelled against him. But he doesn't do that. He rescues us 
and puts us back in the pasture where he can care for us. And I don't know about you, but that, to me, that, that's, that's just so thrilling. It makes the pairs on the back of my neck stand up sometimes when you think about it. What God has done for us when we don't deserve it, when we deserve the very opposite. And awe and fear, because of that, are the right attitudes. We may express them differently these days from bowing and kneeling. We may stand, some of us may lift our hands or whatever. But a recognition of our dependence and our reliance on God, our Creator, is needed. It's part of our worship that we recognise that we are wholly dependent on God, that without Him we are nothing. So what are you worshipping in your life at the moment? What is it that takes centre stage? What is it that you abandon yourself to? It's a constant temptation for us as human beings to put things in the place of God in our lives. I don't want to be sexist here, but there are things that uh, are tempting to, to, to men and to women, different things that we can put in the place of God in our lives. Ladies, is it the way you look? Is it appearance? Is it, is it your home? Is it clothes? Men, what is it? Is it career? Is it the websites you're looking at? Is it the latest gadget? I don't know. What is it? Anything that starts to take over our lives can be an object of worship. And if it is, then it's an idol. And we know that God will not countenance rivals. He's a jealous God. He will have no rivals. Worship God alone, says the Bible. So if you're aware of something in your life, something which is taking over, something which you're beginning to lose control of, something which you have to go back to time and time again, even though you don't want to, maybe, then seek help. I urge you to seek help. Because we're called to worship God alone. Talk to somebody about it. Pray about it. Do something about it. Bring God back into the centre of your life. So praise for our Saviour, worship for our Creator, and the third mark of the people of the King, I believe, is obedience. And this comes in the last half of the psalm. And it follows on from worship because we can't show our dependence on God without obeying him. If we didn't obey him, then we would not be dependent upon him. Just as the worshippers of celebrities try to follow them, perhaps in fashion or lifestyle or whatever it might be, so in a much deeper way, we, as God's people, should be following our Lord. And the psalm takes a sudden and um, deeper or sombre turn here at verse 8. It's almost as if God is saying, wait, I've heard your, your expressions of praise and worship, I've heard you tell me that you love me, I've heard you praise my name, well now what are you going to do about it? How is it going to affect your life? It's very stark. It begins by the psalmists giving a challenge. Today, if you hear his voice, well, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to listen? And it's today, it's right here, right now, at this moment. How is your relationship with God? Are you hearing what he's saying to you? And how is it going to affect you? And it's if you hear his voice. And that word here isn't just sound waves going into your ears. It involves reacting. It's the old word hearken, how it was translated in the Old 
versions, hearken, which means not just hear, but do something about it. Hearken means listen and react, do something about it. So today, says the Lord, if you're hearing his voice, and you may have been coming to church for years, you may call yourself a Christian, just as those in the wilderness called themselves the people of God. But it may be that only now you're hearing the voice of God, hearing what God is saying to you in your heart. And if you are, then God's plea to you is, don't harden your heart. Because the psalm turns then from the psalmist speaking to God speaking. It becomes personal. It becomes right down deep in our hearts. And God says to us, don't harden your hearts. Don't turn away. Don't push it to one side. Listen to what God is saying to you. He says, you've seen what God can do. You've seen how he can save from sin and death. So don't turn away. Come. And if you've never done it before, receive his gift of salvation. Become a true child of God, a true member of this people, this people of the King. And for those of us who have turned to God, who have repented, then we must continue in our faith. Paul wrote, Now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm. In the desert, when the people of Israel were wandering around in the desert, only two people, Joshua and Caleb, were able to enter the promised land. Out of all that that number, it was estimated that there were about a million people that came out of Egypt. And the Bible tells us that all of them died in the wilderness. A whole generation died out. Only Joshua and Caleb entered the promised land. And what was the difference between all of them and Joshua and Caleb? Well, the difference is they all rebelled against God, but Joshua and Caleb showed faith and obedience. They trusted God and they were obedient to what God called them to do. They said to the people, come on, we can go into this promised land and we can take it because God has said so. And the others said, well, we can't possibly do it because the the opposition, the enemy, is too strong, too great. But Joshua and Caleb believed God and acted. And because of that, they entered the promised land. So what should we do when we hear God's voice? When we hear him speaking to us? Well, the psalmist says here there are some things we should not do. We should not harden our hearts like the Israelites did at Meribah and Massah. Now that actually is just one place. It was a place called Rephidim, where they had camped on their journey and when they stopped there they discovered there was no water. They might have expected water to be there, I don't know, that's probably why they stopped to camp, but there was no water there. And they started complaining, first of all to Moses and then to God. And they quarrelled with Moses because no doubt he was encouraging them to trust God. He was saying, look, God's rescued us, he's brought us this far, he'll, he'll supply our need here, he'll supply us with water but they wouldn't believe him. They rebelled. And it says they tested God. Now that word tested means put on trial, really. It's not testing to see what God would do. It's saying to God, look, you've let us down and here's the evidence. We're going to put you on trial. That's what it means. So they tested God. And the point is, it comes in verse 9, God says, you tested me even though you'd seen what I've done. 
They'd already seen God supply food for them, that he supplied the manna and the quail in the desert. They'd already seen how he rescued them miraculously from Egypt by passing through the Red Sea. But now they couldn't believe, they couldn't trust that he would supply them with water. They'd also seen how God dealt with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had had nine opportunities to submit to the will of God. Each time God said to him, let my people go, and he wouldn't. He hardened his heart. And eventually God said, well, enough is enough. And on the tenth time we know what happened. The the angel of death came and the final plague was the last straw, as it were. And the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but not before he hardened his own heart. He turned and rebelled against God and turned his heart against God. And the Israelites had seen this happen. They'd seen what had happened. When, When hearts are hardened, they'd seen how that, what the consequences that that happens uh, when, when God, when you harden your heart against God, God eventually says enough is enough. And when they came to this place, Rephidim, and found no water, they rebelled against God. They hardened their hearts. Could they not have come to God with their request? Could they not have asked him instead of arguing and complaining? They hadn't learned the lesson of verse 7 that God cares for them as sheep in a pasture. Their hearts were hardened and they deliberately turned against God. And this rebellion, after hearing the voice of God, carries consequences. God says in our translation that he was angry with that generation. That word really means disgusted. Not in a capricious loss of temper, but in an outraged sense of God having done everything for them and yet they still rejected him and turned against him. Hebrews chapter 3 uses this psalm to warn us not to turn away from God with an unbelieving heart. Persistent refusal to obey the voice of God results in a hard heart and unbelief which can only result in failing to enter the rest of God, his peace, his kingdom. But the good news is that that kingdom is there place of rest, that place of peace is awaiting us for all who will trust and believe in God. Those who have received his grace, turned from their sins, trusted God, been forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus, will enter the rest of God, the peace of God. And do you think you are too weak to obey God, too sinful perhaps, too wayward for God to use you? Well, one of the speakers at Keswick put it like this. Listen then to a list of the people of God. Moses was a stutterer. Peter was a boaster. Thomas was a doubter. David was an adulterer. Mary Magdalene was possessed. Zacchaeus was short. Elisha was bold. Samson was hairy. Paul was a murderer. Timothy was a youth. Abraham was past it. Martha was an activist. Mary was a listener. Daniel was a slave. Solomon was rich. The widow at the temple was poor, Epaphroditus was ill, and Lazarus was dead. Do you think God can't use you? Because he can. Whatever you feel your weaknesses are, he can use you. He doesn't want great gifts and talents, although he may use those. What he wants is faith and obedience. Trust in him. The ending of this psalm is deliberately stark. It stands as a warning to us not to be complacent, 
but to hear and obey the voice of God. So where does it leave us as the people of the king? It leaves us in an immensely privileged position, but with great responsibility. The privilege we have is that of knowing and being under the care of our loving creator, knowing that everything is in his hands. We need to trust him, to know that whatever the future holds, and sometimes it will be difficult, there will be difficult times in the future, hard times, worrying times, fearful times, and those are just the times when we need to remind ourselves that God is our creator, that he is our saviour, that he holds us in the palm of his hand. He's rescued us from judgment and brought us back into a right relationship with himself. And if that's true, then our response to him can only be one of praise and worship. How could we think ever again of turning away from him once we've experienced his goodness and his grace and his love towards us? Amazingly, that's what the Israelites did. They turned away. But I trust and hope that we won't. But we do have a responsibility to keep on listening to him and being obedient to his voice, to hearing what he says. And it's an everyday occupation. Today, if you hear his voice, tomorrow and every day, we need to listen to him and be obedient to his word to us. And we are promised as a result of that a level of love and care beyond our wildest dreams. And our hearts and lives respond then in praise and adoration of him, our great God, our shepherd, our king. Thanks. Thanks be to God for that.